Good morning. Welcome to Money Matters. It's Jennifer Stone filling in for Dave Petso today. Um, I have a guest joining me here shortly, but before we jump into that, I did have a couple of things come up this week that I just really wanted to share. And of course, phone calls are welcome, but you might want to hold off until she gets going because she's going to have really good information that you'll want to ask questions on. But this was an interesting week. I had two situations that really hit me that made me think. First, with everything going on, people start to get worried and want to react. It's hard when there's so much uncertainty and you're uncomfortable to not want to do something. So that's why as planners, we always say, okay, we know these type of situations, as heartbreaking as they are, things are going to happen. Things are going to come up in life. You're going to have tragedy. You're going to have uncertainty. But if you've made a financial plan or you've set to a program or you do your commandments like Dave talked about last week, these are the things that I am going to do no matter what, that might stop you from making changes that are just not going to work out in the long run. Had a couple clients this week call. The first one really, really wanted to go out of all investments and put it into treasuries. And she was very comfortable saying, let me just get 5% and I'm done. 5% is better than zero. Has it been for a long, long time? Bonds are paying a little bit and they are now maybe a more appropriate part of a diversified portfolio. But you have to remember bonds, fixed investments give you interest. They don't grow. So you'll get interest as long as you have the money there. But if you need cost of living adjustments, there's no growth in that principle. They just will give you interest for the time you hold them and then your money back. Stocks, that's why it's also a part of a portfolio, tend to grow so that you get growing streams of income instead of just a set amount that can change if can go up, yes, but could also go down. And then you can maybe not reinvest at a place that you feel comfortable. So yes, it does make sense at times to look at the overall portfolio and make adjustments, but don't make all or nothing decisions based on emotion. Another one that came up again, because everybody's talking the lottery, we had uh, questions about, you know, if you win the lottery, what do you do? Well, first of all, no one ever wins. I know you say, well, somebody just did, but the odds of you winning the lottery are next to zero. Also getting large lump sums of money kind of go back to that lottery feeling as well, because you have money that you never had before, so it's much easier to spend. So we had people that actually sold property and had a large amount of money that came in from it. And they're not used to having that. So they started to say, I want to spend it on all these different things. So sitting back and making a plan when you get lump sums of money, no matter where they come from, is super important because it's much easier to spend money that is, I guess, called found money than money you work forward and build and save for. So don't just react again to getting lump sums of money, emotions of investing, all these things that we talk about all the time really came quite clear this week when I had a couple people ask questions that you're like, oh, yep, we're back to this again. So remember, always make a plan. Go back to the plan. Do your investing commandments and keep them there just because you say, this is what I'm going to do. Probably should make them when you're feeling good and not bad, but just stick to what it means that to do what you said you're going to do, no matter what the conditions. All right, so I'm done lecturing. Uh, phone number is 580-KIDO-580-5436. You can also email me, jstone at petsofinancial.net, and I'll pull that at breaks and read those if they come through. But now I want to introduce one of my favorite guests. She always has so much good information. She was here a year ago, hard to believe it's been that long, and we had lots of positive feedback. Everyone wanted to talk to her after we were done, so we wanted to bring her back again. Um, it's Ariana Clapp Youngren, 
And she is from Clappen Associates, an attorney or a, a law, law firm, excuse me, in Eagle, Idaho that we've worked with for many, many years. Um, she's got great advice on getting your estate plan in order. But before we go there, I want her just to take a minute and let her introduce herself. Tell us a little bit about her and why she's an attorney and why she specifically specializes in estate planning law. Good morning, Jennifer. Thank you for having me back. It's always uh, a pleasure to hear what you and Dave have to say uh, because we come up on a lot of those same concepts in the estate planning realm. Uh, But I've been with uh, Clappen Associates for uh, almost 10 years now and graduated from the University of Idaho College of Law up in Moscow. And I went into law originally to Uh, help women. And I was specifically interested in domestic violence and some of the disadvantages that women have, uh, particularly in the legal realm. A lot of times women don't have access to uh, finances, resources in these situations. So that's what really started driving me to to law. While I was in law school, I started taking some estate planning and tax courses and and come to find out that uh, these courses were extremely natural for me. And I found that a lot of estate planning is family law, working with uh, individuals who really need guidance, perhaps when somebody dies. And I found that this is just an area of the law that I truly love. I, I enjoy working with families. There is sometimes some some drama, some sadness to it. But at the same time, there is a reward, I think, in helping individuals plan for this unknown and difficult family situations. So that's a little bit about me. Um, mm-hmm. And Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, because I know you and I've had conversations before with situations where um, the women and people are going through divorce, right? And she's had absolutely no ability to understand the finances. It's not something that she never focused on. Um, and it's, it's sad. It's because if they would have had a little bit better plan in place to understand both sides of it, uh, it would help tremendously. Absolutely. I was just meeting with somebody yesterday who she lost her husband. Women typically outlive men. And it was a very traditional uh, marriage where he took care of the finances. And she is now picking up the pieces, trying to figure out where all their accounts are, what he did with the accounts. And he tried his best before his passing to get her updated, but it, it just wasn't enough. So a lot of our conversation yesterday was centered around how she can search for just where their accounts are and and on top of losing her husband and everything that comes with it this is one of the last things that she needs to deal with so it just adds to that heartache and tragedy for her yeah we uh, actually recommend to our clients to do what we call a love letter so the love letter basically lists out all of your accounts you don't have to put passwords and logins and all of that in there but who do you go to so if clap and associates is your uh, your attorneys you want to make sure they're listed so that if something tragic happens to you your spouse both of you at the same time they know where to go your banks where they're at because people say well it's really good to have a safety deposit box but how many people know where they are so you have a box somewhere and no one knows where to even find it. So the love letter lists out all of your assets and who to contact to make sure you have everything in place. Exactly, and we encourage that too. We have a checklist that we provide to our clients to you know, put in their binder or their, their cabinet saying, 
you need to make sure you have a list of your accountant, your financial advisor, your attorney. Uh, if you have a prepaid funeral plan, this is all the information and people that you need to talk to. So we encourage that as well. Good. So what is estate planning? It's a very big word and encompasses so many things. So what's the basic? So very true. It does encompass a lot and it looks different for every single person. A young family, their estate plan would look very different from somebody who might be retiring, from somebody who might be inheriting. But in a general sense, an estate plan are a set of documents that we put together that address situations that a can occur during your lifetime. These would encompass powers of attorney, both medical and financial. And then your estate plan will address the situation that happens when we will inevitably pass and where we want our property to go and in what fashion. Do we have trusts for children? Do we have charity devices? And it also appoints somebody, usually an executor or trustee, who is tasked with the job of harnessing your assets what what's there and making sure that your debts are paid and that the property ultimately goes to who you want and in that fashion so that is the the end of life planning that most people typically think about and oftentimes we forget about the documents we need during our lifetime which are the uh, financial power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney so what is the most important document? Because we hear frequently, well, Idaho is a death-friendly state. It's community property. Everything will pass to my spouse. Why do I need a will? So that's a great question because I always go back to separate property and community property. And a, there's a lot of assumptions that are made in Idaho, particularly that Idaho is a community property state and therefore everything is community property or everything will automatically pass to my spouse. And when you have, let's say, a new marriage, or you have assets that you have perhaps brought into the marriage but kept segregated, those are going to potentially be viewed as separate property. And the last thing you may want is children trying to argue that these assets in dad's estate are separate property because if you die without a will and you do have separate property or somebody is alleging that a certain asset is characterized as separate property, half of the value of that asset passes to children, not the spouse. So we have had circumstances where there has been a long-term marriage and maybe spouse has quick claimed her interest in the house to the husband, maybe as part of a refinance process. And she thinks it's community property, but what she just did was she quit claimed her interest to him. And now the kids are asserting that this is dad's separate property. And then dad passes and we have this, this characterization uh, fight ensue about where does this asset go? And that is a good reason to have a will to clarify anything I own, whether it's separate or community, goes to my spouse to avoid that situation. And it also helps nominate who you want in charge. Sometimes we have, uh, we do want everything to pass the spouse, but maybe he or she cannot manage the money. Maybe they have an illness, maybe they're, they're just not ready. And so it might be nice to have a friend or other person nominated to actually get the assets to the spouse or for the benefit of the spouse. 
So can you write your own will in Idaho or does it have, what does it require to have a legal will? That's a really, really good question. So Idaho recognizes two types of wills. One is called a holographic will. The holographic will is a handwritten document. So typically you see maybe on just a simple sheet of paper, but the, and it's signed and dated by the person making the will, also known as the testator. And the testator must have the material provisions of that document in his or her handwriting. So if you just type up your will, print it off and sign it, that is not a valid will that Idaho recognizes because the material provisions are not in your handwriting. So that is a holographic will. The other type of will is a will that is uh, could be typed, it could be handwritten, but it is signed and witnessed by two individuals. Now, preferably, you will have a notary to that same document because the statutes will say that makes the will self-proving, meaning that the proponent of the will, the person bringing the will forward, does not have to prove that this was in your handwriting, that this is your last will. The notary, two witnesses, and your signature on that document that you create are presumed valid. And one of the things you always have to remember, too, I know when you're first married, you're just starting off, you're like, I don't have anything anyways, it really doesn't matter. But if you have children, you want to be sure you have something in place for them, correct? Absolutely. Because when, if something happens to you, you need to have a guardianship nomination in a will. Not An ancillary document is fine. It's, it's at least trying to document your intent. But the reason you want a guardianship nomination in the will is if something happens to you and your spouse, your nominated guardian can take the will and can file it with the court and the court will issue letters of guardianship automatically. And you do not have to go through this long drawn out guardianship process that you would potentially otherwise have to if there was no guardianship nomination. And I will say one of the first guardianship cases that I was involved in as a guardian at litem attorney for a minor child who lost both of her parents was horrendous. There were three family members fighting over this little girl. And it was traumatic for the daughter to not lose her parents, but this, but this child also had un, no idea where she was going to be placed. So... If we have that guardianship nomination in a will, it, it could have avoided a lot of that heartache. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, it is, like you said, it's devastating enough to lose parents and then have people fighting over you, whether they want you or not, what what happens in the meantime. So it's just very good to have all of that put in place. It is. It good, is. Good. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about estate planning. And if you have questions, I know Ariane is more than welcome welcoming the questions. So please call 580-KIDO, 580-5436, or jstone at petsofinancial.net. We'll be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Money Matters. Jennifer Stone filling in for Dave Petso today. Um, joining me is Ariana Klopp-Youngren from Klopp & Associates, a legal firm out of Eagle, Idaho that we've known for a long time. And she's answering a lot of questions today. So, you know, we don't get that much access to a very experienced attorney without paying a lot of fees. So I like that she's come in and volunteering her time today. It's very nice of her. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. All right. We were talking about wills. Um, and a lot of times people get confused between a will and a trust. 
Yes, this is one of the first topics when I'm meeting with a new client is it's always a good idea to revisit some of the basics. And the basics being, what is the difference between a will and what is a trust? And when do we start leaning towards one vehicle versus the other? So a will is a document that becomes effective when somebody dies. The will, of course, directs who's in charge, where the property goes. The will is generally more simplistic, as you'll see soon, than the trust. The trust, on the other hand, is a document that is created during your lifetime. A traditional trust is oftentimes tied with the person's social security number, so it's considered a disregarded entity for tax purposes. So nothing changes for your uh, tax return, nothing changes as far as liability, but it is a legal vehicle that holds title to property. And when somebody dies, because this entity holds title to the property, it continues on after that person is deceased. So if the trust is funded correctly, meaning that assets are appropriately titled into the trust, it can avoid the probate process, whether that's in Idaho or another state. The trust can also plan for incapacity. Because it holds title to assets, you have a nice package that is easy for somebody to take over when you are maybe disabled, when you are uh, incapacitated, maybe from dementia or Alzheimer's, or if you are have passed away. So when we start looking at do I need a will, do I need a trust, most families can go with either because Idaho has an extremely simplistic probate process if you have the original will and if there's no other disputes that require clarification by the court. So sometimes I'll have clients that elect to just do the will and allow their spouse or their children to go through the probate process after I explain the simplicity. However, we do have clients that they perhaps have some businesses. Maybe they have a couple different properties. Anytime we have property outside the state of Idaho, we always start looking at a trust. We have clients that like the trust because typically it's a little bit more private. Unless we have an issue with the trust document or uh, an administrative question, the trust does not get filed with the court. So clients generally like the privacy aspect of a trust. Because we have a lot of uh, people moving here to Idaho, they will bring trusts from other states. So sometimes we'll just work with the existing trust. But those are generally the differences between a will, a document that becomes effective when you die, versus a trust that we fund now to either avoid the probate process in Idaho or other jurisdictions, and to just house assets to easily transfer when we pass. So also remember, if you go through the process to get a trust, and I know that uh, Ariana's office is really, really good about this, make sure you retitle things. Just because you have a trust document, it means nothing if you don't title in the name. Yes, and and you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head (laughs) a lot because this is a a common issue that I see and something I emphasize when I talk to my clients, if you are choosing to create a trust, funding is crucial. The trust can only control what you have moved into the trust or or named in the trust or coordinated by a beneficiary designation. Otherwise, it's, it's called a dry trust. It's empty. And we may be looking at a probate mm-hmm. if we have not 
title things appropriately. So what I do is I can move my the, the homes into the trusts and the residences. I try to encourage my clients to move their bank accounts. If they have a financial advisor like Petso Financial, we try to reach out to them to make sure those beneficiary designations are coordinated with the trust and their estate plan. But over time, what can happen is maybe the client moves and they forget to put the new house in the trust Mm -hmm. or they will open a new bank account and they don't put that in the trust. And so then we're still dealing with a potential probate or other administrative matter on the back end. So every few years, really think about that estate plan, double check those beneficiary designations and titling because the trust can only work as well if you put things in the trust. Right, right. And so when we say titling to just to, I mean, it, it's very clear, but if you have an account that's like joint owners with rights and it's you and your spouse, that needs to be taken the document, the trust document to whoever that account is with and they retitle it. So that's how you get it into the trust. Also, I have a question on bank accounts because we get this frequently. Um, if the bank account is in the name of the trust, we've had people have a hard time depositing checks made payable to them because it's not a like registration. So some people actually put the bank in their name with the beneficiary of the trust. I do encourage that, especially for checking accounts. Savings accounts, we don't run into that issue as much. And usually we hold a lot more money in our savings. So yes, put those in the trust. With checking accounts, if we have those automated deposits, we have automated withdrawals, sometimes the bank is going to require that they create a whole new account and it'll affect social security deposits, payroll, things like that. And it also can affect those check deposits that are written out individually to you with certain banks, not all banks. but So to avoid that, sometimes clients will keep their checking account in their individual name. I usually encourage the clients to keep it under around 20000 because uh, it, it helps avoid, again, you know, that probate process. And then just name the trust as the pay-on-death beneficiary. That does help a lot. Good, good. All right, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to talk about beneficiaries and what that pay-on-death designation means. Again, please call 580-KIDO, 580-5436. We'll be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Money Matters. Jennifer Stone and Ariana Klopp Younger and filling in today for Dave Petso talking all stuff estate planning. Um, I know you're listening out there, so we'd love to talk with you. 580-KIDO, 580-5436, or shoot me an email, jstone at petsofinancial.net. All right. This one is a big one for us. Beneficiaries and titling of accounts. This is huge. Yes, this is a, a huge piece that gets overlooked by clients. I think they get their estate plan together, they sign the documents, and then they're tired and they don't want to do anything else. (laughs) And so what is crucial, though, with an estate plan, whether you do a will or a trust, is to really go back to your life insurance, your your IRAs, your employer, any employer-sponsored plans to make sure that you have updated your beneficiary designations uh, and to coordinate that either with your trust or your estate, go back to your bank accounts and see, did you name beneficiaries on there? Do we need to remove those and, and change them up? And the reason this is so crucial is these beneficiary designations are considered non-probate assets. So you may have the best intention laid forth in your will or your trust, but If you have these accounts and you say, on my passing, my IRA goes to my brother, 
that is a contract with that company, and they are obligated to pass that asset to the named beneficiary of that plan or of that account. So even if your trust says you want everything to go to your children, and 10 years ago you named your brother before you had kids, and you never updated that, that, that is pretty much stuck. It is very hard to overcome and, and fix that account designation after you've passed. So please do check those after you've updated your plan. You know, I had the most interesting situation come up. So I really want you to talk about this. Uh, We had a couple that were married. He left her as beneficiary. Then they divorced. Mm -hmm. And the death certificate, but he never changed the beneficiary in his IRA. So they called us to figure out, try to help them work through. Well, the custodian put it as no beneficiary. So removed her because they received a death certificate saying he was divorced. Mm -hmm. So they said that there was no intent after to change that. So they assumed that it wasn't hers. So to me, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's another reason you have to change your beneficiaries. If he would have updated it after the divorce decree, it would have been fine. But since that or excuse me, since the death certificate came in and said they were divorced, they took the money back. So uh, and the legislature clarified this for us a few years ago. If a person divorces in Idaho there is a statute that states that any beneficiary uh, under a IRA life insurance, any fiduciary nomination, such as a personal representative, agent under a power attorney, or a beneficiary under the will, that it gets revoked. The presumption is when you divorce somebody, most spouses wouldn't want their ex-spouse to inherit or receive the money. And it is extremely common that I see where a spouse forgets to remove their ex-spouse from from these documents. So the law tries to write in this presumption. However, I have run into situations where it has still been a struggle with the financial institution or the company to agree to not give the funds to the ex-spouse because the plan says goes to the spouse. And then I have to try to write this long memo and say, but this statute and here's the divorce decree and this statute says that she's revoked under Idaho law and we need to honor this. And then they have to send it to their legal department. And I will say I have seen a split across the financial institutions. Some will uh, disgorge the spouse's interest. Others will say, no, you need a court order before we're going to do anything. So save us the headache and take the (laughs) ex-spouses off. And it will save you so much money, right? Because you don't have to do all this to get it in order of exactly what you want to begin with. Exactly. Right. So another one came up. I had a lot of stuff come up this week. So it's kind of interesting, right? Um, He wanted to name beneficiary on an IRA to his estate, not without one, because then, of course, it passes by the document of the custodian. But he wanted to write estate as beneficiary because one of his kids was a mess with money. So he wanted it to go by his will. Not what his attorney told him to do, because we found that out later, but he was wanted it to be the estate. Okay. Anytime we have a tax-deferred account, like a 401k, an IRA, annuities, we have to be extremely careful with those types of beneficiaries. So we have federal law that requires what's called required minimum distributions on these tax-deferred accounts. Your estate is not a recognized beneficiary or recipient of 
those required minimum distributions. So what ends up happening is it'll accelerate all of the tax-deferred income or status of that account, and trust and estates have a condensed income tax bracket. So not only is all that tax-deferred income accelerated, it is now being taxed under a completely different tax bracket, which is condensed, and you are likely going to pay more taxes than if you had just named an individual. There are ways around this. For example, when if we want to designate a trust, maybe for a child, as the beneficiary, maybe the child is irresponsible or they're young and they cannot receive this IRA, do not name your estate, do not name the general trust. Instead, what we advise our clients to do, and we give them the very specific language, is they need to name that child's trust specifically that is established in the estate plan. And we include what's called this required minimum distribution language in that child's trust directly. And the federal law does recognize this, where it allows the trustee of that trust to receive those required minimum distributions, and they can either hold it in the trust, or it can be treated as a conduit trust, where it comes into the trust, and then the trustee pays the benefit to the beneficiary. So each has a different tax uh, implication, but you do not run the risk of accelerating all of that tax-deferred status mm-hmm. if we structure it appropriately. So this is huge. It is missed a lot. And it is something that I review with my clients at the beginning. We review it at the end. We remind them constantly. If they come back in to see me, I always ask them <laughs> to make sure they structured it. Yeah, we see it too. And we when understanding that if you have, we, we were kind of joking around a little bit with the, the person that was trying to do this. And we said, well, either your kid blows the money or you give half of it to the government and they blow it. So you can choose. <laughs> and he finally got it and he went, I get it. So it's one of those things that just really think about what your purpose is with those funds. And another thing that comes up is you have three really good kids and you have one that's either special needs or not responsible. So you decide to give it to the three because they're going to take care of the one. Yes. And, and I do hear this a lot because people want simplicity. They want a plan that they understand. They don't oftentimes want to go through a lot of hassle. So there is an inclination in us to just say, I'm going to give it to my other three children, and I trust that they will take care of my son who has special needs or is struggling. The risk with that is there's no obligation. If you transfer those funds to the three kids via beneficiary designation or by will or trust, and you do not put any stipulations into those terms, there's no obligation to actually care for that other child. And oftentimes what I see is it usually comes down to one child who's trying to use those funds to, to adhere to mom and dad's intent, and the other siblings, it's their money, they're paying taxes on it, and they don't, they've written little Bobby off years ago, mm-hmm. and they do not want to to be sucked back into to that dynamic and they legally don't have to and they legally do not have to there's nothing to compel them to give that money over so again i think every family dynamic is different i do see a lot of promises made of course i will take care of this you know i will do this and there there are some great family structures out there where they do adhere to mom and dad's intent but most of the time 
it, it doesn't turn out the way that I know my clients wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Which it, it's sad because there's not much you can do after the fact. There's not. Yep. Yep. All right. We are going to take our last break of this hour. We come back. We're going to talk a little bit more on titling, adding kids to titles of homes and all those things that are big, big no-nos. But again, love phone calls, 580-KIDO, 580-5436. Good morning. Welcome back to Money Matters. Jennifer Stone and Ariana Klopp Youngren filling in for Dave Petso today so he can enjoy a long weekend. And he is back live next week. So if you have questions, please call him and call us. We've got a lot to discuss on estate planning. And when we left, we decided to talk a little bit about titling. A lot of times if you have children, you think it'll be simpler to pass estate by just putting them on all your accounts. Yes, I I get a lot of clients that come in where they have already done this and I usually have to walk them through the legal implications of what this means or they're considering it. And so I want to distinguish this from if we name a spouse, if we have a joint account with a spouse, the law treats these accounts differently. So if you have a bank account, husband and wife, it is considered a joint tenant account. So if wife dies, the account does pass to the husband. However, when we add children to our bank accounts, it is viewed as a matter of convenience. And it is not intended under our laws to pass to that child, unless you name that child, let's say, as the pay on death beneficiary. And this comes up from time to time, actually quite frequently, because when mom dies, let's say mom adds son to her account, mom dies, the bank will tell the son, you are the surviving account owner, it's your account. No, that is not correct. Yes, on title, he is the surviving account owner, but the funds therein still pass under mom's estate. He is viewed as being added for a matter of convenience to assist with bills or taxes, whatever mom needed. But the money is intended to flow under mom's estate plan. And we have had several litigation cases where the child is asserting, no, this should come to me. And the burden gets placed, the legal burden gets placed on that child to prove by clear and convincing evidence, which is a high standard for, uh, for you to know, to demonstrate that mom intended the account to pass. And absent some sort of written statement, it, it's near impossible. So again, if you are considering naming a child in the account, there are other options. For example, you can have them as an authorized user. Instead, they could use a power of attorney and then they could be an agent on that account instead. And then that helps eliminate the risk that the child might consider the account his or hers when you pass, especially because the bank can tell them you're the surviving account owner. So there's this misconception with passage of accounts with parent and child. Yeah. And also, if you put them on there, they have as much right to the money as you do. So I know you trust your kid. I know that's great and everything's fine. But we had a circumstance once where uh, he had power of attorney. He was on all of her accounts. We would call and confirm with her because she was pretty still capable of making her own decisions. She just didn't want to. And she was one of those situations where the husband had passed away. He never did. He did everything. So now son stepped in and took over and he took pretty much almost all of her money. He built a house, but he put a wing on it for her, of course. And then they had to fight to get her money back because he was taking advantage of her the entire time. It, yes, I had a, well, it, it, still in the works, but 
very similar case where a husband died, son gets added onto the accounts, and slowly over the years started siphoning off money. And he was had assumed it was a joint account. And so even if it was an innocent presumption uh, on his part, he it was still incorrect under under our laws. And really what mom's intent was, was that he was just there to help her and not use it to buy motorcycles and <laughs> uh, trips. So it, it is, you know, be very cautious if you have these joint accounts, making sure it's clear, maybe update the pay on death designation so that it does go where you want it to, if it's part of your will or estate plan, or perhaps use an alternative method, authorized user or power of attorney Mm -hmm. is my preference. Mm -hmm. And as Jennifer mentioned, there are implications when you add that joint user, not just the risk of using the funds inappropriately, but liability. If son has some sort of legal judgment, maybe he got into a car accident and is at fault because he's a one half viewed as a one half owner on that account that will be a potential asset that a collections uh, company could view to satisfy this judgment mm-hmm. so then your money is now implicated in whatever lawsuit your son is a part of. Well, yeah, yeah. Think about it before you make those changes. I mean, they're big decisions. Also, uh, it's interesting, too, because we had a young lady that worked with us for a while that was from Cleveland. And in Ohio, they could actually put beneficiaries on homes. So everything could basically pass by titling and not needing a trust to avoid probate. But Idaho doesn't allow that, correct? Only with spouses. So, and, and this is very... It's a large topic to discuss, but in a nutshell, spouses can pass their interest in the property to the other person. You have to have what's called community property with rights of survivorship on the deed. A lot of clients say, I already have that on my deed. Most likely not. Title companies do not automatically put this on. You have to specifically request it. But community property with rights of survivorship allows that the decedent's interest to pass to the surviving spouse. Idaho does not have joint tenants with rights of survivorship on any other uh, titling between, let's say, uh, siblings or a parent and a child. Idaho does not have that. And there is a lot of discussion to be had about and, and misconceptions about adding your child to the property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned, too, when we were talking a little bit about uh, the whole issue, and you hear the music, so we'll wrap this up quick, that, again, if you own a house with your child, they have as much right to it as you do. So if they decide they want to sell it, there may be talks about doing so. Maybe they sell it out from under you. There's so many risks. So don't just go with convenience. Really understand the law and what your decisions mean. Um, Convenience is great, but it's not always the right answer. We come back next hour. We're going to continue with the planning. I just think it's so important to get this in order. We'll talk powers of attorney and what that means and how they work. But please call us 580-KIDO-580-5436. And we'll talk after the hour. Good morning. Welcome back to Money Matters. Jennifer Stone filling in for for Dave Petso today. My tongue gets tied around my teeth sometimes. Um, Joining me is Ariana Klopp-Youngren. Uh, She is an attorney with Clapp and Associates in Eagle, and she's been gracious enough to come in and help educate us on the world of estate planning. Uh, Before we went to break, we started to talk a bit about titling, but I know there's some things that really 
just drive her crazy about this. So I wanted to spend a little more time talking about the titling, adding kids. And of course, we want your phone calls, 580-KIDO, 580-5436. And Barb, we will answer your question momentarily. Thank you. So before the break, we talked about the joint titling on accounts, the presumptions with husband and wife, presumptions with kids. And we also started talking about joint titling on real estate. There are two large misconceptions that I see with clients where they want to add their child to the home because they believe it will avoid probate or they gift the home, they transfer the entire asset to the child uh, to avoid probate and they have missed out on some some tax benefits in, in that process. So taking the first one, adding your child to the home and does not avoid the probate process if you are still on title. All you've done is gift your child a one half or one third interest in that property. You have lost a portion of your tax basis step up when you die. So as a recap, when somebody dies, all assets can get a fair market value basis step up or step down. So if you had purchased your home for 300000 it's now worth 400000 when you die, that would be your new tax basis. If you transferred a portion of your interest out on the home, well then half of the home or whatever interest you transferred out will not receive the tax basis step up. This is important for you know, potential capital gains that could be owed if the home was sold after you passed. Number two, you have now subjected this property to your child's uh, potential legal affairs, meaning that if they are married, this could be uh, part of a marital asset now. Mm -hmm. If they divorce, does half of your home go through your child's divorce proceeding? If your child, again, has some sort of legal liability, goes through bankruptcy, has a legal judgment because they got in a car accident, your home is now subjected to that. And number three, your child is now a legal owner of this home and they can sell it. And, and, and we trust our kids. We don't think they would ever do this to us, but being in this field, we see enough of the worst case scenarios that it's important to warn you that your child can file for what's called a partition action and force the court to sell your home or can kick you out of your home. So I, I strongly discourage parents from ever adding a child to their home. Mm -hmm. The other scenario is where a parent wants to gift the home to the child. And it's all the same implications. You lose out on basis step up in the home. The child can kick you out of the home if you're intending to still live there. The child can uh, have some sort of legal judgment, bankruptcy, or other uh, financial stress. And this home is now subject to all of that liability or uh, marital property or potential marital property, excuse me. And it has these unintended consequences that we don't think of mm -hmm. down the road. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe I've ever encouraged my clients to add children to their title. And if that happens, if you're already in that situation, we usually do an analysis of, okay, why did we do this? And can we fix this? Can we maybe quit claim it back to mom or dad? And we usually sign a, a document trying to correct the... Uh, the, the the transfer and, mm -hmm. and document the intent that this was really more of a, a 
a mistake and and was kind of viewed for convenience and so we we yeah. do our best to try to fix that if we need to. <laughs> this comes back to to a lot of times when these situations come up, like you talk about all the time, it's convenience, 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 or someone you know did this and it worked really well for them, or you're taking advice from people that don't truly even understand the law. They just know enough to be dangerous. So if you want to do something that you've heard of and you haven't gotten the advice of a professional that deals with it all the time, just put on the brakes for a minute. There's no urgency to change anything. Slow down, call someone because the mistake and the cost that you may have versus hiring a professional like Ariana to go over everything isn't even close. So please just think before you make these decisions. Also something to think about, you get an exclusion for parts of your home for property tax every year. If you give that away, there's only one primary resident per person. So if you give that away, you're going to be paying higher property tax every year as well. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. You're exactly right, because if this is not your child's primary home, uh, then only, let's say, half the value of that property tax will be applied to the property, and then your property taxes will increase. So that is that is another consideration as well. Yeah. It used to be, when we first started doing this, we thought, you know, it's so easy to do estate planning in Idaho. It is a pretty death-friendly state. Like Ariana said, probate is easy. All of this is really simple. Then I started to open my eyes up a little bit and say, you know, but we can't close off some things. There were people that came to us that got a trust no matter what. We had some that came and they didn't even own a home. The only asset they had really was a bank account and an IRA. And they ended up with a trust. And they were charged six grand to set it up. So we saw a lot of that. So we kind of put this barrier up and said, trusts are not good. Wills, estate, easy. So we kind of had that block. But then I started talking and I actually talked to another attorney um, before I think even Ariana was there because we've worked with Klopp and Associates so long. And Sandra made the point of you pay now or you pay later. So if you pay now and you get everything in effect by doing a trust and getting things in order, and I'm not recommending, I'm recommending talk to a professional and what you want, they can help you design. And she said, so you pay up front, may cost more now, or you pay after the fact by going through probate. So just know your options, but don't try to figure it out on your own. Definitely. And you, we hear the saying, well, my neighbor did this, or my parents did this, or Google says, and I look at them and I say, well, are they outside Idaho? Because that might work in Illinois. That might work in Florida. It doesn't work here. And so be very cautious about what other people set up or what you see other people doing. Again, each estate plan is is individual. It should be specific to you and your state and your assets. So it will look different. Mm -hmm. And so do not make those presumptions that we can just pass property by adding a, ch- a child to our home or by, by gifting it to them. There are so many other legal ramifications that it, it, it is a good idea to, to walk through because in the scenario that we have been talking about, adding a child to home, well, when we're trying to fix it and the child will not quit claim that back to the parent, I've seen clients spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to fix the error. So Really, it's again, it's cheaper on the front end just to get the advice than paying for it on the back end. And our favorite thing in the world is Google, right? It's you can find something that will 100% agree with you because you go down rabbit holes and there's other people that have done this. 
doesn't mean it's right and it will work. It just means there's a group of people that have done it. So that rabbit hole of the internet, it's like WebMD, right? Everybody's going to die. You have this rare disease that no one's ever heard of, but with your symptoms, this is what you've got. So just be careful. And always, um, I always look at it this way. You may trust what you read, but always verify. Trust but verify is so important in almost everything that you do. So let's go to our phone call that we received when we were at break. It's from Barb. She wanted to know how much per year she can give to her children and if there's a time limit. Um, and I'm thinking if she means every calendar year and how that works. Yes. So each individual in the year 2023 can gift $17,000 per person per year without filing a gift tax form. That's form 709 with the IRS. That does not mean taxes are owed. It just means that you are telling the IRS, I'm gonna use some of my estate tax exemption during my lifetime if I gift over 17,000. Now I believe, and please don't quote me on this, but I believe for next year in 2024, it is increasing to 18,000. So come 2024, you can gift up to 18,000 per person without having to file that form 709. If you'd like to gift more, that's fine. You just need to file form 709 and you will have less estate tax exemption to use. Uh, before I can encourage you gifting more than that, be careful if you you may want to preserve the maximum amount of your estate tax exemption because it is a little bit in limbo. We'll talk about that momentarily. So I think it would be wise right now for this year, if you have three kids, you can give $17,000 to each of them. If you are married, then you and your spouse can each gift $17,000 each, so a total of $34,000 between married couples to each person or individual you want to benefit. And then you can reevaluate next year in 2024. You can then gift $18,000 or or 36,000 if you're a married couple yeah. per person. Yeah. Uh, one part of Barb's question was, does it have to be cash? Can it be an asset? Yes, it can, but you have to do evaluations. So in the case of, let's say, real property, if you want to give a up to 18,000 or $17,000 of that real property, well, typically we need to figure out what percentage of the property is that. So if you have a We'll make it easy because I, on math for me, but if you have a $100,000, let's say, plot of land and you want to gift value of that to your, your child, again, we usually have an appraiser or a CMA done to document value. And then you can give a 17% interest in that property to the child and can continue gifting. If you have a company or if you have an LLC, sometimes we will gift what's called membership interest. And that's still the value of that LLC will need to be documented. So we can gift other assets. We just have to kind of go through more valuation procedures to make sure that we are not exceeding the gift of seventeen or $34,000. Good, good. Yeah, and do keep track um, because I don't know that there's a lot of audits that are done on this, but there probably are. And you sure don't want someone to come back later and say you over gifted and you didn't file the tax forms that were needed. It's a simple tax form if you work with a tax preparer. I know um, Tom in our office does taxes and he's filed that form for people several times. Very simple to do, uh, but just keep track of it, right? You want to make sure you're doing this right. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about that exclusion so we can make people understand what you meant by going against your estate tax exclusion. 
exclusion. Okay. All right. Perfect. We'll be right back. Good morning. Welcome back to Money Matters. Uh, Jennifer Stone filling in for Dave Petso today. Um, We love phone calls. We keep saying that, but I'm going to keep pushing them because we have a lot of valuable information sitting here that needs to be shared. So please call if you can. 580-KIDO, 580-5436. Email works too. If you don't want to be on air, we understand. So uh, again, just hit us up. We'd be love to talk to you. So one thing you mentioned when we right before we left break is that the gift if it's over the annual exclusion amount of 17 hopefully 18,000 next year you can do more but it goes against the estate yes it goes against your estate tax exemption so as as a basis every person has an estate tax exemption right now it is 12.9 million dollars a little bit over 12.9 million dollars where you can pass that much money or assets free of estate taxes. Estate taxes are the tax that's imposed on your estate when you die. However, it is scheduled, this this estate tax exemption is scheduled to sunset in 2025, back to $5 million indexed from inflation from the year 2011. So accountants are thinking this will hover around six to seven million if Congress decides to allow this uh, estate tax exemption to sunset and go back down. So when we're looking at gifting and you decide to make a gift to a child during your lifetime that exceeds the gift tax exemption right now in the year 2023, that's 17,000 for or or 34,000 for a married couple. So if you make a gift of 100,000, let's say, then the IRS expects you to report that using Form 709, and then you have $100,000 less that you can use for your estate tax exemption. For many people, that may not be a big deal, but because we might be going back down to a smaller estate tax exemption, when we might be looking at a $5 million estate tax exemption, this can impact more people than perhaps $13 million does today. Mm-hmm. So it is encouraged to look at the net worth of your estate plan, factoring in all types of assets, for example, your IRA, your home, your your savings, and your death benefit on life insurance factors into your uh, net worth on your estate tax. Factor all that in and kind of make a determination how close you might be to this five, six million dollar exemption if it goes back down. For many clients, they'll they, they say, I'll never hit that <laughs> in my wildest dreams. I'll never get close to that. So making a large gift to a child and filing Form 709 is not a big deal to them. But for many clients, it is a big deal. And so they are extremely conscientious of how much to gift. And they will dole small chunks out over time of cash, investments, real estate, LLC interests. Mm-hmm. So I want you to clarify one thing, because when we're talking this through, I think it gets a little bit confusing if you say, well, if I put beneficiaries on everything, it avoids probate, so it does not go through my estate. However, even though those assets have beneficiaries, it's still part of an estate. That's correct. So when we look at estate taxes, we are looking at the gross value of everything you owned on death. So even though we do have beneficiary designations on life insurance and IRAs that will pass outside of a trust or a will, that does not mean they are excluded from being calculated in to a potential estate tax situation. So what 
we do is we look at your gross estate, and that is going to include, again, your cash, your real estate, your businesses. It includes your uh, IRAs, and it includes the death benefit on your life insurance, which for some people can be quite large. Mm -hmm. And so when you factor all that in, that's your gross estate, obviously, then minus your deductions, and and then we have the estate tax um, uh, credit. So for a lot of people, it does equal zero at the end. Mm -hmm. But for some people, it does not. If you do have an estate that exceeds that estate tax exemption, then we're looking at a 37% tax. Yeah, which is a lot. It is a lot. It is the highest tax we have. That goes back to don't name your estate as beneficiary on your IRAs. <laughs> it all ties exactly. together. All right. I do want to, if we have time, but I want to touch on a couple things that are more common. But if we have time, I'd like to maybe potentially talk about Medicaid planning and giving away assets so that you qualify for Medicaid. Which that's a great topic. It's a huge topic. And it's coming up more and more in my practice. Yeah, I bet. Okay, so we have time, we'll go back to that. But first, let's talk on a couple things that I think everyone needs. Um, I didn't even think about this, which it should really come up when your children are becoming adults, you no longer have rights for medical decisions once they hit 18, unless they have a medical power of attorney. Is that correct? That is correct. Because the law presumes when you're 18, you you become vested with all of the legal rights uh, as an adult. So they have the right to vote, to, to drive, make a will, and make medical decisions for themselves. So we have parents that have been taking care of perhaps maybe children with special needs, whether from autism or some sort of developmental disability. And when they turn 18, the parent is, is technically not allowed to continue to make care decisions for them. Now, some individuals might have enough capacity to sign what's called a health care power of attorney, delegating these decisions to their parents. But some people do not. Some children who turn 18 do not have the ability, whether physical or mentally, to sign these types of documents. And that's where we start looking at a guardianship proceeding of that child. Um, And it's called a a Title 66 Developmentally Disabled Guardianship Proceeding. It's a very specific process for children who have special needs. But uh, even other children who, who aren't disabled or have, have difficulties, when they turn 18, they, if they get in a car accident and are in a coma, we really, really need somebody to have this decision-making authority and to help, to help avoid a potential guardianship proceeding or conservatorship proceeding, which is over assets, I encourage my clients that if their child wants to and is able to, have them sign a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney so that if something happens to them, they have the ability to uh, act for their child if if, if something occurred. Uh, one very sad guardianship case I had. He was uh, 18, almost 19, you know, about to head to college and got in a horrible car wreck. And mom had to file for a guardianship and conservatorship so that she could start making care-related decisions for her son once he got out of the hospital. Wow. So again, if we have these powers of attorney, this could have potentially been avoided. So encourage your young kids Mm -hmm. uh, as they start getting to that age of majority to start thinking about putting 
very simple powers of attorney in place. Yeah. yeah. More important on that than even a will because they have nothing yet. Yes, they have nothing yeah. yet, but it's still who can make medical decisions yeah. and, and care-related decisions if something were to happen. Yeah. And you wouldn't even think about that, right? You'd assume, well, I've always taken care of my kids. What do you mean I can't do it anymore? So remember, once they become adults, you're no longer responsible for them. I mean, you are, but you know. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, again, one phone call would be great. Let's talk. Uh, 580-KIDO, 580-5436. Good morning. Welcome back to Money Matters. Jennifer Stone filling in for Dave Petso. He will be back live next week. We have been doing a few more recordings just to see how it goes. We enjoy that. It, we can sit down at the office and banter back and forth with his fun too and gives him some freedom on a Saturday morning every once in a while. But he is back and ready to go next week. And I know he's looking forward to it. But this week, we're lucky enough to have Ariana Clapp Younger in here helping us discuss estate planning. Another topic that comes up a lot, and we're asked this frequently, is can we, as their financial advisors, also be trustees and executors and everything on their will and estate? Because because they trust us, we help them, we know everything about them. First, we cannot do that. That's not something we do. It's a different world altogether, and it's a lot of work for people that take that on. But that brings up, how do you choose someone? So it, it is a common discussion that we have with our clients. We try to break down why they are wanting to choose a certain person, or if they do not know who to choose, how we can guide them through what their options are. Because you can put together the most amazing estate plan, but you put the wrong person behind the wheel of this Mercedes, let's just say, and, and it's it's going to crash and burn. So it is extremely important to put somebody in this role that can make tough decisions, that can deal with potential difficult beneficiaries. And one of the most important things is going to ask for help from professionals because I see clients that they put the oldest child in charge, but that might not be the most suited. Or they'll put the child in charge who's local, but who maybe is not equipped to handling the stress of the administration. So some factors to consider really look at somebody who of course will make their time available they have to efficiently administer the estate so we want somebody who is is capable and we want somebody that is going to ask questions they this is going to be a first time for a lot of people having to administer mom dad or siblings estate so when you put somebody in charge, we want them to talk with the accountant or the attorney or financial advisor. We will have clients that come into us about halfway through an estate administration or almost at the end, and things are falling apart because they were trying to save a dollar and figuring this out on their own, and the beneficiaries are getting upset or they don't understand what they need to do next. And so just get the advice from the beginning. It's a lot more efficient and it's usually cheaper uh, on the front end to get that advice. So I usually like uh, when clients choose somebody who is going to seek the advice from counsel just because it does go a a lot smoother. And then oftentimes we see clients where they don't know who to put in charge. Maybe they don't have children or they, they don't have many family members left or their family members are the same age as them. So sometimes we start looking at private fiduciaries. So as Jennifer mentioned, their company does not serve as a private fiduciary, but there are local companies in the area. And I typically try to give about three different referrals so that they can go sit down and do their research and meet with a trust officer. These are great 
options for for clients because it's a neutral third party. They are a professional, so they are used to doing this day in and day out. And if you have maybe a family dynamic that's extremely difficult, maybe siblings don't get along, or you have a particular beneficiary who might cause some problems, having this professional in place rather than a, a sibling of that that child can help eliminate some of that tension. So um, most of the trust officers, or excuse me, trust companies, they do have a fee schedule, a published fee schedule you can look at. Nothing is charged until they actually need to act when you pass away. But do not get so tied up in the fee schedule. It's usually well worth the money. Um, we have Northwest Trustee here. We have Tresco. We have Bank of Idaho, Idaho Trust Bank. Uh, even Charles Schwab has a trust department, but they're based out of Nevada. There's many, many companies and different options. And you just need to see what a good fit is for you if this is the route you want to go down. Good. And naming a, a successor or contingent is important as well, because if something happens to one and you don't want to go update all your documents or they choose they don't want to do it and they just don't refuse to do so, maybe have a couple in place. Exactly. I would say at least two or three. And sometimes we'll name an individual or two with, with a trust company as a backup. And so they have that out. If they are in, uh, maybe your son or daughter that you've named is just having a difficult time in their life, they don't feel up for it because of age or health concerns, then it gives them a really easy uh, out to give it to the trust company mm -hmm. to administer. Uh, you can even appoint what's called a trust protector, where let's say you do want to name a company, but you want some supervision, or you want to name your child, but you still want some supervision. Idaho allows for what's called a trust protector of your trust, and it is either a company or another person that has the ability to supervise this fiduciary. They have the ability to remove this person if they are acting out of bounds. They have the ability to maybe clarify terms or bring uh, an action before the court if they need to. They can approve compensation, whatever you set forth. So you can even kind of put a, super, uh, a supervisory role mm -hmm. in that document as well. Good, good. So we talked about medical power attorney, but we didn't really touch too much on um, financial power of attorney. So we've seen two different types. One where if basically if I tell my husband can do whatever, if I'm out of town or traveling, he can go in and just take care of things. But there's also another type called a triggering. Can you talk about the difference? Yes, and a and, uh, springing power of attorney because it is a document that becomes effective or springs to life when there has been a determination of your incapacity. Typically, this is done by a physician, psychologist, where they make a written statement saying that, okay, John Doe is no longer able to take care of his financial affairs due to X, Y, and Z. That determination springs this financial power of attorney to life, meaning that the agent you've named can, at that point in time, make financial decisions for you during your lifetime. And sometimes the capacity, the incapacity, is temporary. Sometimes it's long-term. Uh, as Jennifer mentioned, we sometimes we will remove that springing clause, that incapacity clause, allowing the document to be effective immediately. So if you travel a lot or if you're out of town um, or, or you just want to make it more efficient for your agent, then we would not put that clause in there and then they can act as needed. Mm -hmm. So 
doesn't a POA end when you die, or is there a certain term or a little bit of t- period of time, or is as soon as someone passes away, it's done? As soon as somebody passes away, it terminates, and that's when your will or your trust would move into the next phase. And the document itself, uh, if you have a trust, you still want to have a financial power of attorney, because again, as we talked about earlier, the trust can only control what is inside the trust. The financial power of attorney is going to deal with perhaps debts, tax returns, legal interests, social security, all of these other assets or legal interests or or debts that we can't necessarily transfer into the trust. So extremely important to have both documents. And if you have someone like, we, we need to circle back a little bit to kids and letting them help as we age. It's important to have that in place if you're just not confident paying bills and doing some of this or you know asking for money or getting some guidance. But do that through adding a financial power of attorney. We watch frequently and we see our clients age and as things start to slow down a little bit, they do want some help. And that's when they call and start asking about adding kids to different accounts. And we always suggest they get the power of attorney in place and then send a copy to places. You may not want to use it yet, but hey, it could be there and ready to go when you do. And then they're actually verified and added to accounts. It can also be revoked, correct, at any time. That is correct. So you have the ability to... Re, you know, change the agents or revoke the power of attorney. I definitely recommend only revoking it if you intend to replace it with another agent or, or, or document. But we do see that where perhaps the child has moved away, they're not as helpful, or they can't help as often, or sometimes the, the client is not happy with that agent's actions, so they want to, to fix it and to change it. And if we do that, we want to make sure the bank and the financial institutions have a new copy of the power of attorney, and we usually send notice to the agent whose authority was revoked that they are no longer able to act anymore. So clarify one thing for me, because even if you add power of attorney to an account, that doesn't mean you're giving up your rights. You still can do everything on that account just like before. Absolutely. It is still your account. We are just allowing somebody to have assistance and manage those assets for your benefit. And I want to be very clear, this doesn't give them free reign. When you are nominating an agent under power of attorney, they are a fiduciary, which means they are held to an extremely high standard. They must manage your assets, your income, your accounts for your benefit or or you and your spouse's benefit. They cannot run with the money. They cannot change who the beneficiary of the accounts are unless you have said that they can, and it must be in accordance with your testamentary plan. So there are a lot of restrictions in these documents that help try to put some checks and balances in place. And but it is still your funds. Good. And uh, we, a conservator is different than power of attorney because the conservator means you're not able to act on your account. And that's when you've basically been removed of having any decision making, correct? Yes. A conservator is a court order. And there's a legal process to go through that to have a conservator or a guardian appointed. Typically, we see both at the same time, sometimes not. But if you are a minor child and you receive an inheritance outright, you you cannot manage your money. You cannot legally inherit. So we typically see a financial institution require that a conservator is appointed for the minor child. Or if we have a parent, let's say they have Alzheimer's or dementia, and they do not have a financial power of attorney in place, then we have to go through the legal proceeding of a conservatorship where the court basically makes a finding that this person is no longer able to effectively manage their assets, usually because of some sort of disability. And 
that it is in their best interest that somebody be appointed. That takes power and control away from the owner of that account and somebody else comes in as a fiduciary. And the court, the Idaho Supreme Court does have a monitoring program so that we do annual accountings and they are reviewed by a committee to try to make sure that if there is a conservator in place, that there is supervision and checks and balances in that process. Perfect, perfect. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I want you to tell us what the most important parts of estate planning are and what absolutely needs to be done today. We'll be right back. Hello, and welcome back to Money Matters. Jennifer Stone filling in for Dave Petsa today. Before we wrap this up, first of all, I just really want to thank Ariana Clapp Youngern for being here. She is so much fun to talk to. We just sit around and we gab about silly things on breaks. She's just wonderful, Um, and I really do appreciate you coming in. Absolutely. Thank you. I I was excited to get the invite uh, to come back because I really do like talking about estate planning. It's one of those topics that can be easily overlooked and and forgotten about. It's Mm -hmm. not fun for most people to talk about death or their passing or or aging. And but it's inevitable. And and, and we do need to have these tough conversations. We do. And, you know, it's interesting. It comes this these go together hand in hand finance and estate planning and all of this. They just play tremendously together they have to right and nothing that is worth doing is super easy we talk about it with fitness we talk about finance we talk about estate planning all these things that are so super important are almost always difficult to talk about there's always emotion attached to them but you can't ignore it you have to do this so what would you tell people is something they need to do now call an attorney make an appointment to go through their estate plan look at what they have what is number one in your mind today? If you have an existing estate plan, pull it out with with you, your spouse, whoever you need, pull it out and look at it. We get wills and trusts from the 60s and 70s still. They are outdated. They do not work anymore. We Even from the early 2000s, when the estate tax exemption was different, you may not need a lot of the planning that went in there. Perhaps you had minor kids. Now they're adults. We, we Maybe we need to make some adjustments there. If you have marriages, divorces, maybe your kids have married somebody that you don't like, <laughs> we, we should contemplate these. Maybe you have grandchildren now. So pull out your existing documents. Go through them. Make sure you have who you want. Uh, appointed to to manage everything when you pass and have the circumstances changed in your family or your own dynamic or your own finances and your portfolio that necessitate a change and if so call your attorney and and have them make an adjustment if you have nothing in place if you have nothing in place please do set an appointment with an attorney i and i was talking to jennifer about this on the break there are programs out there such as Legal Zoom or Rocket Lawyer that can make these documents for you. And it is this hard pull for me where I see the I see these documents come across my desk after somebody passes and it's something. There are sometimes issues with self-made wills, but it's something. And Idaho law wants to give as much intent to the testator, the maker of the trust or the will, as we can. So we, we are going to try to adhere to your intent, even if it's unclear, we're going to we're going to figure it out. It may not be perfect, but at least it's something. So I do, I always go, please do hire an attorney, hire a professional because you get what you pay for. Um, there, again, if you make your own will and, you know, th- by a handwritten statement or, or legal Zoom, uh, again, 
it's it's better than nothing most most times. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and beneficiaries, double check it. Um, if you lose a child tragically or something happens or your spouse passes away, something happens, make sure you've updated those beneficiaries and add contingent. That just makes it really, really easy if something happens. We um, had a situation where someone had called and was a referral to us, and what had happened was the spouse passed away, she was named beneficiary, and there were no contingent. And they passed within a few months of each other, so no update was done. And unfortunately, there were some kids that were estranged and weren't really a part of the family that weren't really in the estate plan. But there were no beneficiaries named, so it passed as if there were no beneficiaries. And that goes by what the custodian says, spouse, then children, and then whatever down the line. And it went to people that he really had no intention of it going to. Yes, and we see that quite, you know, sadly, where things do not get updated or there is no estate plan. And sometimes the individuals you want to benefit are not biologically related to you. They could be step-siblings. They could be step-children, your step-grandchildren. These are not biologically related to you. So Idaho law does not think to include them. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure we identify the these persons specifically, or perhaps you want to give everything to charity and yeah. not family. Right. We need to make sure that's that's put in place. But yes, please do, um, you know, revisit your estate plan every few years. Just pull it out, make sure it still works. And if you don't have one, please do get one. A lot of people just think that they don't need one or they don't want to think about it. Um, we, you know, we try to have positive conversations with our clients, and uh, e- even though it's not a fun topic to to address. Yeah, and if you do have a charitable desires, talk to also how to give because there are types of accounts that are better to give to charities because charities don't pay tax. So maybe you give away your IRAs that are pre-tax dollars and give Roth to people you love tremendously because they get a tax-free gift. So there's planning that can go in types of assets and what type of beneficiaries to add. Exactly. Absolutely. Good, good. Well, we are almost out of time. Um, Again, just remember, if there's something that you're questioning and you're needing, I'm sure Ariana would be happy to take phone calls. They're available um, at her office. If you'd like to chat with her, you can call our office. We can give you her information. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if anybody ever wanted to reach out and had questions, um, my email is aclapp, C-L-A-P-P, at clap, C-L-A-P-P, hyphen, the little dash, <laughs> legal.com. Or you can always call our office, which is 208-938-2660. We're happy to set an appointment or try to you know see what we can what we can do if you have those questions yeah yeah these are very complicated situations and we know they're hard to discuss and it's it's very good to get some great advice um and again don't let your emotions take over we know this is a difficult time we know there's things that you're worried about and concerned about but there always are this isn't different it's just a different issue right now so whenever you get concerned or you're worried go back to that stated plan you made I always believe strongly that you want to look at why you're doing it, what you're doing it for, and what the outcome will be. So don't give up. Don't get worried. Call us if you need anything. That's why we're here. And Dave will be back next week. Thank you again for listening.